0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. The phrase, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, puts drugs front and center in our cultural picture of the music business. Given the stereotype, it's hardly surprising that addiction is prevalent throughout the industry, from musicians to crew to label executives. But many people who are in recovery also successfully stay in the industry, including musicians who maintain their sobriety despite the stereotype and the pressures of their job. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's show, we talk to some folks who have experienced addiction and recovery while doing their jobs in the music industry about the challenges, the stereotypes, and the ways they're helping others. It's all coming up on The Future of What. for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Gene Bowen. Gene, welcome to The Future of What.
1: Hi, Porsche. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Why don't you just give us the quick little you know, elevator pitch of what Road Recovery is? It does, I know it does a lot, and so that's probably asking a lot. You know, we can get into more facets of it, but what's the quick pitch?
2: So Road Recovery is a nonprofit organization comprised of entertainment industry professionals who have all dealt with their own personal adversity, working with at-risk youth through the process of creating, planning, and executing live concert events and recording projects. And wrapped around that is we've created a bridge between the entertainment industry and the medical world. So we work in conjunction with treatment providers that are overseeing the care of the kids we serve.
0: That is such a cool thing to do. I'm really very impressed. We've been doing this
2: for 20 years, so it's like, oh,
0: okay,
1: that was pretty concise, right? (laughs)
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. So now you were inspired to start this organization because you were a tour manager and you actually were tour managing for Jeff Buckley. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Jeff Buckley was the catalyst, the co-founder of Road Recovery, Jack Bookbinder, and I had worked together in 1990. He was working with Greg Allman and the Allman Brothers. And I had a background of working with 60s musicians and stuff. So I knew that drug pool very well. So that whole situation or whatever... (laughs) With Jack in 1990, kind of, as you can imagine, hit a brick wall. And so I got clean in 92, and then Jack started managing Jeff Buckley in 93 and got a hold of me and said, we're looking for a tour manager. And at that point, I was a year clean, and uh, I got clean in 92, and this was 93. And the long and short of it, I tried to run away from the opportunity as much as I could because it was going to be a two-year world tour back in people, places and things. And every time I tried to get away from it, working with Jeff, it just kept coming back around until finally I basically broke my anonymity and asked for things that no one in the music industry, from a tour manager had asked as far as support from the band management and label in order for me to go out and do the tour and like they say, be careful what you ask for. And they gave me all that support. So the grace tour, unfortunately, Jeff's only tour by me being very open about my lifestyle, memos were sent through the Sony music system. And wherever we traveled for those two years, people came out of the woodwork and extended a hand of support, whether they themselves had an issue with the drugs or alcohol, or they were affected by, or they had an eating disorder, or they were dyslexic, or they were having a crummy day, and they just extended a hand. And that was really what became the awareness of, wow, I'm seeing my industry in a completely different light, And there's got to be a way to corral that power and that experience, those life experiences from people in our industry and use that for good to affect our most precious asset, which is kids.
0: That's fantastic. So you've been clean 25 years?
2: I've been clean 25 years. February 23rd, 1992 is the last day I did heroin. Wow. And anything else. Yeah. But I drank excessive amounts of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at 53, you know, we're 53. You're you're looking at prostate stuff. So I got I'm
0: hoping I'm not going to lose that, that last right. Vice, Your last device. You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So, you know, I'm there's so many things I'm interested. I don't even know which direction to go in, but I love the idea of people in the Sony system reaching out to help and having people at every stop be there for you. I've recently spoken to people who've worked with Music Cares the Recording Academy program. Yeah. And one of the people I spoke with is a basically a he does NA and AA meetings backstage every night at big festivals. Okay. That's his job. So was it kind of like that? Was it like people who would take you to a meeting or people who would, I mean, what what kind of help was extended to you?
2: Jeff Buckley was such a priority on in Sony. And so Jeff was doing a minimum of six hours of interviews a day and then a show and then moving on to the next. And I was with him at all times. And so it really didn't, I was really traveling on fumes in a lot of ways. I had before going on the road, I had a two year, what we call a coffee commitment at, a, at my home group. And, uh, you know, I think that was the foundation from which was you know, really was so incredible to help me when I went back out on the road. But so it would literally be people just showing up at a show, or it might be, you know, we might be out doing promotion or, or whatever. And I, then person would say, Hey, Gene, I, you know, I, I read about you and, uh, this is my story. So in the middle of doing an in store or a radio interview or something, I would be sitting and talking to a Sony person or, you know, I'd roll up at a venue and I'd be talking to a, you know, a union guy at a, at a venue or a promoter and we get talking and next thing you know, we're talking about whatever. And it, some were people who dealt with addiction or in recovery and others, like I said, we're, we're dealing with, you know, they just lost their mother something. And like just the action or the engagement for that matter of, of someone from, you know, my world that we could talk about something would certainly change what was going on in my head. If I was having a bad day or thinking of getting the, the f-its and wanting to get high or whatever it was. But so yeah, there were people that I did go to meetings with and then there were people who just showed up or people who did something with me like, the, like you were just describing. Cause I know about the safe Harbor rooms and stuff with music cares and you know, we'd have that happening. So it was really on day-to-day basis, but being completely open because, you know, I respect people's anonymity and road recovery does. But, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I was a mess and I almost died from this addiction. And I was putting myself in an environment where I was going back to people, places and things, which is the number one that, you know, any person in a white coat is going to advise you do not go back to people, places and things. And, right. and here I was. So I was, I was like, I don't care. You can you can say whatever you want about me. I don't care. Um, you know, it worked. I got a lot of support. I also, there was a stigma. There's still a stigma about addiction at that time too, a stigma about working in the industry and being sober. I mean, there was definitely people who didn't want to have anything to do with me because I was sober and they weren't. And that was, that was also very good. So, But yeah, it was on and every day was, you know, something I got to know people. And you know, the, we all know that if you become vulnerable, about yourself with others, and you open that door about yourself. It's it's amazing how, you know, I would have production meetings and tour meetings about certain things. And because people knew my background, I was open to talk about it. All of a sudden, they started to talk about their own experiences and stuff.
0: That's fantastic. So it sounds like, I mean, a lot of the secret for you of being on the road and being able to stay clean and sober was connection.
1: Yeah,
2: connections and then tricks that old timers taught me, which was disrupt your system. That's one thing I've always believed in. So, you know, if I was going into a you know, if you did like a 16 hour day and now you've got a meet and greet or there's a post event party or something, you know, that's the last place I'd want to be. So I'd eat a candy bar before I went into that. Or, you know, <laughs> if you eat a candy bar, you're not really thinking about vodka. Right. And um, <laughs> and then I always had a purpose in wherever I went. So. Once my purpose was done in that situation, I was back to the hotel. I was out of there. You know, the devil finds work for idle hands. Right. I
1: really believe that.
2: Right.
0: So road recovery is a very cool program. You work with kids who have had trouble already. Is that the target audience?
2: Yeah, we work with kids who are, we have a program we just started recently called Basic Trust. So those are kids that are exhibiting at-risk behavior. That might be normal at-risk behavior that all teenagers do because they're all at risk. But some of them are self-medicating, some of them haven't been assessed or whatever. So there's that like early intervention kind of side of it. But the meat of our work, a lot of our work is with kids that have dealt with the medical world and for the most part are on the other side whether they're struggling or not but they've been through where they've been associated and had a relationship with some health care provider mental health licensed specialist so generally to say we, we're not a triage center is, is really the way to answer the question right but we have those situations and because we're so tied in to the medical world that we have those resources so if and when or should we can make those referrals but generally, road recovery is really about the solution. What we found is that, for instance, you know, I was 28 when I got clean. So I was, though it was difficult, I was able to follow the prescription of the people, of the white coats, which was please continue with some therapy, join you know, some support groups, you know, move on with your life. But for a teenager, young adult, when they come out of inpatient, you know, we tell them, guess what? They lied to you because it's impossible for them to do that, why? Because they have to return to their high schools or the colleges or those social scenes. So what we've created was what we realized what, they was, what was missing for these kids in order to succeed was that you had to offer them something that, was a, something that would outweigh or out peer pressure what they're getting in those environments by offering them opportunities in the ways of something that they never thought they'd do. A lot of kids that come to us have been so shut down for so long they don't even think of themselves as having any creativity. They never even looked at an instrument. They never even thought of themselves as having anything. And we have to say to them, guess what? Part of being a human being is you compact with creativity. So what we're offering them is a place, a safe environment where they can do something, engagement. Because um, young people, if, you, if you're not engaging them, you can't sit on a couch and just talk. It just doesn't fly. It only goes so far. So it's a it's an environment where they can engage in something that they wouldn't have had an opportunity to that would outweigh the, the peer pressure that they they have to exist in. And, and it's also a safe environment where they can start to get traction on these new skills that these people in the white coats have given them. And at the same time, you know, form and forge new relationships with like-minded kids or like-minded peers. And so a lot of kids started to report to us and this is something we hadn't even thought of was they would say, yeah, I went to school and a bunch of my friends wanted me to get high. And I say, well, if I get high, that means I'm not going to be able to record this song that I'm working on. Or James Hetfield and Metallica is coming to town and James always has us up when they come through town because he likes to see what's going on with us and talk about his life and stuff. So if I get high with you, I can't participate in that. So (laughs) I'm not going to get, I'm not going to do that. So all of a sudden the tables are turned and their friends are like, well, i to do that. And they say, well, I made this choice, so this is what it affords me. And then all of a sudden they get them, all of a sudden they gain respect from their peers and you know, wow. they're cool. That's awesome. No, so that, that's really the essence of, of what we're about. And the other thing also is we're all about life skills. We run, the organization with the kids is run like a tour. It's like, you gotta show up on time. You're held accountable. We have to be organized. You know, we do day sheets. <laughs> we advance the show. You know, we, every time we meet, we go over what we're working on. So ad nauseum, we're we're constantly repeating what we're working on and what we're doing. So it's, it's really what we always say to the kids is if you can't make it in what we're doing here at Road Recovery, you're not going to make it in school or getting a job. These are basic life skills that you're going to need to survive out there. And that's how we run it.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Because from my perspective, you know, this show is about the music business and, and teaching kids about, you know, the business aspect of this. So that's so great that you guys really get them some hands-on experience right away about you know, a lot of the aspects of what it would really be like to do this job.
2: Right, and, and we're not a rock school. We're not launching careers in the entertainment industry. That's not what we're about. What we're about is helping these kids gain traction in this radical change they've been through and helping them transition toward whatever that next thing is, whether it's finishing high school, going out of college, finding a job, all of that. So it's, it's very life-based is the work we do.
0: That's fantastic.
2: The cherry on the cake and the icing on the cake is the fact that we get to... They have access to the entertainment industry and they have access to opportunities or experiences, I should say, that they wouldn't have. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's really about helping them transition toward, you know, a productive life.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, just my own experience and unfortunate track record of my record label is, you know, that the first couple of years clean are the hardest for people to make it through. Exactly because of what you're saying. It's, it's you know, you're so tempted to go back to your old lifestyle because it's all around you. It's really difficult to make that next step. So to give kids an alternative can get them through some of that hardest transition time. So that's really cool. I mean, obviously, James Hetfield, you know, I, I looked at your website. There's a huge number of musicians and people in the entertainment industry who've come forward to help out with this do you guys ever run into trouble? I mean, are there artists who they are sober, they are in a program, but they don't actually, and they want to help, but they don't actually want to be public about it because they don't want to be known as like that sober guy?
2: Yeah. So when we created this, Jack and I did not want this to be one dimensional. One dimensional is sober people. Guess what? The world's not made up of people like that. It doesn't exist. Right. And it's really, it's just so narrow minded. What we wanted to do is, create an environment where people from our industry whatever they have suffered from or dealt with diabetes depression it doesn't matter it's what we're also trying to convey to the kids is that when you're born into the human race there's great things that come with it and there's crosses to bear so in my case it's addiction jack is a type 2 diabetic you know what At the end of the day, you know what a lot of the kids say? Wow, I'd rather have to deal with the mental health issue I have to deal with than what poor Jack has to deal with. (laughs) Why? Because Jack, managing diabetes is far greater than what I have to do to deal with it. So you know what? That guy that I was walking past in the supermarket and I thought, wow, he's like well-dressed, he must be doing good. I look at him differently now because for all I know, he might be suffering from cancer. Wow. So what we do. So for the artists, which has been really cool, why it's it's been accepted or, or there's been an attraction from the entertainment industry, specifically celebrities, is that the fact that we draw or we call upon people from our industry who have dealt with something in their life. anything. So they're not being outed. And the other thing also is whatever that issue, if they say, well, I, I don't want to really be public about it, that's fine. So you're supporting a cause that works with at-risk kids. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. When I'm in the room with the kids, that's when I'm spilling my beans and I'm telling them everything. But when I stand up or I take a picture or whatever of my reason for wanting to step out and support the organization, my reason is because I'm, I wanna reach out to kids and this is an entertainment industry-driven nonprofit. So I'm in the entertainment industry, I wanna help
0: kids, I'm here. That's fabulous, that's really great. So what populations, I mean, do you only serve kids in New York City? I mean, what are the populations you serve?
2: Generally, for the last 20 years, we've been really perfecting this and, you know, carefully building it in New York. We have done pilot programs. We did for a number of years around South by Southwest in Austin. We've done stuff in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We actually did a a three-year summer program in Haynes, Alaska, on the Western Slope. I mean, we've been studied by University of Pennsylvania, Dartmouth, you know, a lot of people have looked at our model and studied it, and it works. It's not, you know, rocket science. It's pretty basic components. But what we're hoping now that we're entering, 2018 will be 20 years, is hopefully that we can start branching out beyond New York City in our work. That's our goal.
0: That's fabulous.
2: You know, if we can find funding and help that will allow us to. Because we don't need bricks and mortar. We can attach ourselves any building, any situation—it's it's a very simple model. And we've proven that we could get it up and going in, in various places around the country. So that's what we're hoping to do moving forward.
0: Do the kids who participate receive scholarships? Are there is there funding for them?
2: Well, and yeah, and, and we're not a healthcare provider, so we're not insurance based or anything like that because we're not treatment. So we're tuition based. So I, the world finally caught up to road recovery, and what I mean by that is. You know, when we first started this, you know, we had a hard time with a lot of people. Well are you treatment? No, you're not treatment. Well, are you an arts program? No, you're not an arts. What are you? And in the debacle of our healthcare system, you know, people have had because of no resources or lack of resources, they've had us look into other outside the boxes ways of, of getting help. And a lot of stuff, community driven or peer peer driven stuff has finally come into light and that's That's who we are. So we're tuition based wherever, but you know, we never turn a kid away and kids stay with us for sometimes six years. So, you know, they just become part of the family and they hand the culture down to the younger kids that are coming. So, you know, it's, you know, running a nonprofit in today's environment and in New York city is extremely, extremely tough. So, you know, but, Somehow or another, we've survived 20 years and many others haven't. So I'm very grateful to that and to those who have supported us. But yeah, we we have a lot of kids on scholarship.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I believe it. Well, Gene Bowen, you're doing great work. Thank you for what you do. Keep it up. And thanks so much for being with us today on on The Future of What? Thank you, Bush. Thank you. Thanks
2: so much for the support.
3: Drink up baby, stay up all night With the things you could do You won't but you might The potential you'll be That you'll never see Rest. Oh.
0: Was Between the Bars by Elliot Smith. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Slim Moon. Slim, welcome back to The Future of What.
4: Hey, it's great to be back.
0: Yeah, it's great to be back on the couch.
4: Yes, it's great to be back in the studio.
0: Yeah, it's nice. I like having people in the studio. It's more fun for me. Which is really what matters. Yay, fun is good. (laughs) Okay, so today we're talking about addiction and recovery in the music industry. Yay! Right on. So this is something that you know something about, partially from having been a drug addict yourself and partially from having been around a lot of people who were in addiction that you ended up working with.
4: Yes, I'm a drug addict in recovery. I've been in the music business a long time. I know from both of those worlds, but I specifically know... Lots about musicians in recovery
0: as well. Yeah, exactly. So I thought we'd talk about all those things. The one thing I wanted to start with is sort of this idea that musicians in our culture are more I don't know, like it's like they get a weird pass for weird behavior. In other words, it's a unique job. And I feel like, you know, I people might say musicians are more likely to be drug addicts than in other types of jobs.
4: Well, There's this narrative that being sensitive or being broken makes you a better artist. Mm -hmm. And I really don't buy into that narrative. Mm -hmm. I don't buy into like Jim Morrison couldn't have been Jim Morrison without his brokenness. Mm -hmm. I do buy into the idea that in a lot of cases, being a musician is one of the few jobs where it's completely normal to be loaded at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so
0: I <laughs> even buy unusual. in Yeah,
4: exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I even buy into the idea that people who want to be loaded at work or want to get loaded a lot might be more apt to go into that business and stay in that business than people who don't want to get loaded. It's like at bartenders, work. right? Right. So I think if there's a higher rate of addiction in music, it's because it's a job where addiction is more acceptable. Right. Not because there's a higher rate of tortured souls in music. I think it's just because it's a place where addiction is part of the picture.
0: Right. I mean, I'm just unpacking this notion of of there being kind of a pass for artists in this culture that, you know, we we feel like artists have to have this element of danger or instability. Yeah. You know?
4: And I think that the biggest issue with that is in a lot of cases what it causes is that musicians who are having uh, drug or alcohol issues, it may take longer or they may never come to terms with their issues, because they get this pass, then people don't intervene or tell them, hey, man, I'm worried about your behavior. Because instead they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's just rock star Bill. He's acting like a rock star. And they'll think of it as normal. And then even inside the musician's own mind, like, I'm rock star Jay, and this is what's expected of me, which can help increase denial and take a longer time to to figure out that it's actually a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if you're successful, if a musician is successful, then they, then the people around them have motive to keep everything as is. And what that ends up happening is that their addiction ends up getting enabled.
0: Right. I mean, if you think about things like interventions, you right. know, and everybody, the idea of an intervention is you're supposed to all get together and say, we're not going to work with you anymore unless you go to rehab or whatever. There's a lot of people who don't want to actually do that because the artist is actually their source of income.
4: Right. Yeah. A lot of times with any celebrity, and especially musicians, the people closest to them and the people around them are also financially dependent upon them.
0: Right, which makes it a lot harder for an artist to get clean because, you know, it's all about the people you surround yourself with. And if the people who you're surrounded with are enabling you to some extent, then it's right. harder you to have, get clean.
4: you have fewer consequences. It makes it harder to see that it's causing a problem in your life. And when you have problems, they get cleaned up for you. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Or, and also when you have problems, you're given excuses, Mm -hmm. you know? Definitely.
0: Now, your own battles with addiction kind of happened before and then during your life as a person in the music industry. So do you feel like you're just more of an addictive personality as opposed to someone who is necessarily drawn to the music business because that would enable your addiction?
4: Yeah, I definitely have a super addictive personality. You know, I mean, the day I discovered Black Tea... The day I discovered, I, is a day I still <laughs> remember to this day. And the day I discovered Pepsi, you know, when I was 12, was is a day I remember. I used to drink a two-liter bottle of Pepsi while I delivered my newspaper route, you know. And <laughs> it was like, I was off to the races. and, and <laughs> Literally. But in terms of drugs and alcohol, it grew with music. Like, the first time I left town to go to a rock show was the first time I ever drank alcohol. So... I developed into the rock scene and into my addiction completely in tandem. And I don't think that's that unusual. Mm -hmm. And so my identity, both in my social group and in my own head, my punk rock identity and my drinking and drugging fun guy identity were completely merged. So when I got clean, I had to like separate those identities and find a way to still be the music guy without being the drug guy.
0: And how did you do that? Because that really sounds hard.
4: Yeah. In my case, I don't know that I have that much wisdom from my own experience for people who are doing the same thing because I had a special aptitude for it. Like I I just got lucky that my brain was able to partition that fairly easily. But I think it is really hard.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, especially since your case is unique because you stopped drinking and then kept hanging out at bars with people who were drinking. And I feel like that's one of those things that's actually quite hard for most people to be able to do.
4: That's the main thing I mean is that my use, even though my use started social, my using pattern was not social. Mm. So the fact that everybody around me was drinking and having fun was not a temptation for me. I think for most alcoholics, that is a temptation. It makes it hard to stay sober when people around you are drinking and seem to be having fun. Mm -hmm. My temptations were much more my own alone, like my emotional state when alone. If I was going to go back to drinking or, you know, in my case, I quit drinking and I was sober for a couple of years and then I started doing drugs. When I discovered drugs as an alternative to drinking, it was completely all about how I felt when I was alone, not how I felt when I was with people. Interesting. And then I continued to use drugs like secretly on my own for several more years before I got actually clean and sober for good or for the last 19 years. Right. Never say for good because you never know what might happen in the future, but before I seriously got into recovery this time, which has been 19 years, I was able to continue to be around people using and drinking and have it not be a temptation for me. And I really can't say I did anything special. I was just blessed with that not being my story. And if I had had a social temptation, I think it would have been very difficult to like be in a band with a bunch of drug users or be in a job that happened in bars all the time.
0: So I had a phone call the other day with a guy who runs a record label on the East Coast and he was telling me about the fact that none of the bands he's ever worked with, nobody has ever died of a mm-hmm. drug overdose. And I was like, wow, that's crazy because so many of the people that Slim has worked with have died of drug <laughs> overdoses or like drug related deaths. Right. Actually more of
4: the drug addicts in my life died from suicide. Oh, thanks for thanks for clarifying. Than from actual overdose. Right. But I've had I've had plenty of friends and business associates who've died in drug-related ways, either overdose, suicide, or accident.
0: Right. So when you were running a record label for 15 years and you had a band that you worked with where you saw that addiction in progress, I mean, what was your reaction to that? How did you handle those situations?
4: In the early days, I really believed in the the dramatic intervention. And I, at least once, maybe twice, I was involved in dramatic interventions where... The people, like many of the important people in a person's life, took them aside and said, we're really concerned and therefore we don't want to continue to enable you and we would like you to go to treatment. And um, in retrospect, over time, my personal feeling about that has changed. But, you know, intervention with a small eye is still something I believe in. I, I think, you know, telling an addict that their behavior is unacceptable or telling them, hey, I think you might have a problem with drugs. I think that those kinds of things are very important. The problem with the intervention with the big I, which I'm still not saying nobody should ever do it, but the reason I wouldn't participate in it in the future is because it can cause you to break with the addict. And I would rather go on in a relationship of some kind and to say, I am there for you if you need. I, I disapprove of your behavior. I'm concerned about your behavior, but I'm here for you. But I still love you and I'm here for you if you need me. There were a lot of times... It was still too close to me. It was really emotional, right? When I'd had a lot of people die who I cared about, and when I saw somebody else who seemed on the road to dying, I just couldn't stick around. To be honest, I hid behind the intervention thing as an excuse to run as far away as fast as I could from people who I thought were on the road to a grisly death. And as I got further into my recovery and had more equanimity in my life, I have found that I'm able to stay in the lives of those folks and tell them, hey, I'm here for you you know, it can make you feel so powerless when you see folks headed that way or when you believe that's where they're headed. But I no longer have to run away from those situations. I'd rather stay available.
0: So what do you think is crucial for people who are musicians or, you know, anyone in the industry who thinks that they might have a problem? Like, what do you think those people need to think about or do? Because, you know, people come to recovery in their own time. You can't force somebody to stop using. They have to get to that place. But like, what what are some tools that, that they should have?
4: Well, going back to the beginning of this conversation where we talked about that musicians get a pass, I think that the thing that happens, musicians and people in music subcultures, one of the stories we tell ourselves is that we're different than other people. You know, we're better or we're more broken or there's various different ways. We have better taste. There's various ways we tell ourselves that we're different. And guess what? I have never yet met an alcoholic or an addict who part of their drinking and using story wasn't, I'm different, right? This story that we're different and therefore we have different needs is the story that addicts and alcoholics tell themselves. And it's frequently the story that the people around addicts and alcoholics tell themselves. So, hey, your music is different. The reasons you make your music is different. The reason you live in your subculture and have ejected the mainstream world is, is different. Cool. I'm not going to disagree with that. But the idea that you can do drugs or drink differently because you're different is just not true. You're just human, and you're going to have the same problems as a banker when it comes to drugs and alcohol. If what you're doing would be a problem for a banker, it's a problem for a musician. So first and foremost, stop thinking you're different. I would challenge that idea. Secondly, I'd love it if in the music culture we would come to this idea that every musician needs an outside person to turn to who's not a manager, a member of their band, or their boyfriend, whether it be a psychologist or a pastor or a spiritual advisor or a shaman or a life coach. Everybody should have somebody they talk to once a week or once a month. Everybody should be willing to get help. Understand that getting outside help is an important part of every life, even if you're not an addict. And that's one of the ways that we get in trouble thinking we're different too, right? We're different in this way that we are iconoclasts who are going to rule our lives and not get any help from anybody or not be told what to do. And any advice we get is irrelevant and doesn't matter in our life because we are broken or have better aesthetics or whatever it is we tell ourselves. And that's one of the ways we're not different. Everybody needs help, including musicians and people in the music world.
0: Yeah, I totally want to go off on a tangent now about the word independent and how that like ties into our sort of John Wayne, American cultural ideal of what it means to be a, an individual, you know, and, and basically what that means to be is alone, right? Like you can handle it. Right. I feel like that's the the statement there is it's like, well, if you're a true independent, you can handle it. And, you know, really no one can handle it alone. That's not how life works. Exactly. So I know a lot about 12-step recovery, and I understand that you do too. Yes. How do you think that's helpful to people?
4: Well, 12-step recovery is, you know, something that's been helping millions of people for 80 years. And like I stressed earlier in this conversation, it focuses on this idea that you're not special and that your problems have been experienced. And no matter how special or different you feel your life has been or your issues are, your problems have been experienced by lots of other people and those other people have found a way to deal with it and get better and they can help. you. Really, I think that's the essence of 12-step and many other self-help and treatment modalities in addiction.
0: But it sort of goes to your, your point about having a spiritual advisor, having someone outside of the business that you can talk to, because I feel like that's another thing that 12-step recovery can provide is like mentors, people that you can talk to and right. who've been through it. Yeah. I mean, I am biased.
4: I love my spiritual director, but if she hasn't had some of the same problems as me, then she just has experience helping people think through their issues. But I also, in my case, need people who have had some of the same problems I've had and have found ways to get better. I need those people as mentors.
0: Do you think it's also extremely helpful for musicians and people in the music industry to have mentors in 12-step who've been through it? so that they come from the same industry. So it, it's part of that specialness thing. It's like, well, look, you know, these people have been in the same business and they have had the same problems and they have gotten over it. You know, they're handling it right now and they're clean. They can be in recovery. I can, I can do this too.
4: Right. You know, there's all these different 12-step programs. There's Alcoholics Anonymous, which focuses on alcohol. There's Narcotics Anonymous that focuses on all drugs and addiction. There's Marijuana Anonymous. There's Sex Addicts Anonymous. There's Overeaters Anonymous. And they all use the 12 steps, but the reason they're different is because of the identification. Like you have a specific issue and you know that the other person had that same specific issue, then you feel like their experience relates to your life. So I think especially in early recovery, a musician might want to look to another musician because they feel this ex-drug addict musician will understand what I'm going through as a musician trying to quit drugs better than just some random addict. I think that's true. But I've also discovered that the longer you stay clean, the more you discover that your issues are actually really universal and that there aren't nearly as many specific, special ways that a musician drug addict is different from any other drug addict. But in the early going, that identification that gets you to buy in is very important.
0: Right. So obviously, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous are two of the resources that are out there for people who might need help. Can you tell us of some other resources that are out there?
4: Well, a super great resource for musicians is Music Cares. Music Cares is part of the Grammy organization, and they really will help musicians get into treatment or get medical help of other kinds, dental help and, you know, heart surgery and whatever else. It's a little known resource. I wish it was better known but they really do help people and frequently do it on short notice when it's a crisis. So if you have a crisis situation, like you're a musician who just decided, oh my God, this is really bad and I can't do it alone. I need help. I might even need, you know, I need, say, an assessment or I might need to go to treatment. Music Cares is a really important resource that's specific to musicians. And I think, you know, your Yellow Pages or the Google equivalent these days is just great too. Reaching out... Is the most important thing. If you feel you have a problem, reaching out to experts is the appropriate reaction. Not thinking, no, I'm a music person, my issues are different, therefore these experts won't understand me. That's the mistake. Reaching out to experts will work. And That's not advice I would just give to musicians. That's advice I would give to the people around musicians. If you love a musician who has a drug problem or if you love any drug addict and you don't know what to do, then it's also true. Reach out to people who are experts at that issue. For instance, Al-Anon or other 12-step programs or other programs that are for people who love drug addicts or alcoholics.
0: Musiccares.org is the website in case anyone needs to use that. And it's only one C-M-U-S-I-C-A-R-E-S.org. And you did that in your own recovery, right? Didn't you reach out to someone when you were like, I'm at the bottom, I need someone to take me to rehab?
4: Yeah, I had a friend who I had always thought was had a much worse drug problem than me, and um, (laughs) then he went to a treatment center and rehab, and he got better, and when he'd been clean about three years was when I had a really bad morning and decided that I couldn't do it anymore, and so... I really did think, well, if that guy who was way worse than me got clean, then he's the guy I should turn to because he might know something. And I called him and he said, oh, I think we should get you into treatment today. And I sat on my hands for a few hours till he could get to me. And then he made the calls, found a treatment center for me and got me in. And I went to the center. They did an assessment. They decided, yes, we recommend that you should come here for 28 days. And I did it. And I've been clean ever since.
0: Well, see, that's a perfect story to end on because that's reaching out, right? Right. You reached out to someone you knew who had had a similar experience and way, way worse than yours. <laughs> at least I, that's what I told your myself. Your perception, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, perception is everything, right?
5: Yeah. Especially at that point, man. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, Slim Moon, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming back and being with us on The Future of What?
5: Thank you. I've been so much happier ever since I joined the Legion of Doom. Who cares if Superman and his bunch always foil our evil schemes? Nobody ever really gets hurt and we always get away at the last minute. Good doesn't really triumph over evil, it just postpones it. In the end, we're always the one who get to claim the last laugh. Which is the whole point of being a supervillain in the first place is because of the laughs. You don't know how much fun an evil laugh can be until you tried it. Everybody here at the Legion are the best laughers. We throw big catered parties and all the super bad guys come and we crack jokes about Batman and Robin and just laugh like crazy. Everybody practices and perfects their own personal brand of evil after. There are so many possibilities. You can cackle, or chortle, or guffaw, or chuckle, or titter, or giggle, or snicker, or roar, or just snort. You can be ominous, or menacing. You can be bent, or you can be grim. You can be foreboding, or you can just be filled with sick laughter. You can just be sick. The possibilities are endless. There is nothing like the combined laughter of a dozen maniacal madmen. We have such great parties.
0: That was Legion of Doom by Slim Moon. You're listening to the future of what? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation... MerchTable stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With MerchTable's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves MerchTable. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Rob Crow of Pinback. Rob, welcome to The Future of What? Howdy. How's it going, man? It's going... So, you have been in this band since 1998? I guess so. Wow. That's a long time to be in a band, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you have been in bands for a super long time. You've done a lot of touring. And I just wanted to ask you, like, what is different about touring sober than, than not?
6: Well, in my early days of touring sober, when Pinback first started touring, like, for the first times I'd ever been to Europe or Japan or anything. I was sober. I definitely felt like an outcast because it was still the early days of that band and they just wanted to, you know, have fun. Yeah, sometimes they would be just trashing shows and I'd be like, come on, guys, let's try to be the best we can. And they'd be like, <laughs> at one point, the drummer at the time just stood up and said, everybody that wants Rob to stop talking, raise your hand.
0: <gasps> oh, my God.
6: But not long after that I went back into being an alcoholic and I did that for a long for many years, up until two years ago yesterday.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Thank
6: you. I've done three tours since then. Like two month long US's and a two week West Coast. And I don't have a lot of free time to complain about anything because I do the merch and I tour manage as well. And for at least the first the month longs I also this heavy exercise routine where i do at least five mile runs every day or try to so it's like get to the venue make sure everything's cool do all the merch do the sound check try to get some kind of food run for you know about an hour and then you know be all sweating get back to the merch table and just go from there talk to people sell stuff and then play the show for an hour or so and then do the merch and then get everybody to the hotel and then pass out and do it all again in the morning.
0: Is the exercise routine, has that come with the sobriety or was that part of your life before?
6: Just this one day I had to complete. That's when I did the I'm quitting everything stuff where I quit doing music for a while and quit drinking and quit being around poisonous people and being in situations that were just bad. Right. Not that I was like the worst and not like I I was, you know, into anything terrible. It's just like, I got to stop. This isn't making any sense monetarily or being a dad and a husband are the most important things to me. And I got to make sure that everything in my life is being positive and making positive changes and, you know, drinking two thirds of a Jameson every day or three to four bottles of wine every day is not helping out with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody who gets sober or clean talks about going through a period of not knowing what to do with yourself. Mm-hmm. I think people have to like fill their time up, and it sounds like you've certainly done that on tour. <laughs> like you've got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's. Just, I haven't. I,
6: the other day I was with my wife and in like the container store.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: And I was wandering around, and and I had this weird feeling. And I didn't know what it was. And I got kind of a little like, what is this? What's going on with me? And then I realized I was bored. <laughs> and I hadn't been bored for years. <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing. I remember. I remember what it's like. <laughs> this is great. And, uh, and I wasn't bored anymore, obviously, after realizing that. But it was like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, having done this for so long and being a career artist, which is something that I think, you know, I talk about a lot on this podcast because we're really in the business of trying to get people to be career artists and not just, you know, put out one album and go back to washing dishes or being a lawyer or something. You know, we want people to have careers if possible. Do you think that that is... Sort of an overwhelming part of of the ethos of being in a band is this idea that like we're just going to party and get wasted and like that's the point of being in a band. Kind of.
6: I don't know. I, I mean, it all depends what kind of band. I guess. I mean, there are party bands where that's what they write about and that's what they do. But you know, I only know from my experiences. I, I mean, even when I was you know was a heavy drinker and everything, I, I wouldn't hang out with people or bands that were. right I mean definitely not the drugs and womanizing type of people and and I don't you know associate with those kinds of people because those people and bands are lame
0: (laughs) totally I just think we have like a culture like in our culture we have this narrative of like you know to be an artist means on some level you're like kind of tortured and you get to have this you know like you get this pass it's like oh yeah it's okay if you're you know a blackout drunk because you're a tortured artist and you need you know you need that to relax or you need that to unwind and that's part of you know part of your job is to to do this.
6: Oh, uh, I, I don't think so. I think that's just a really good excuse for making
0: bad art. <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to totally quote you on that forever. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob Crow from Pinback, thank you so much for being with us today on the future of what. Well, thank you. Was Vibrational Match by Marnie Stern. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Elliot Smith, Slim Moon, Marnie Stern, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com/slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.
3: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business.
0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.